The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are so pleased to be, for the first time, recording from Mississippi Studios. We are, we are starting to record on Sundays at Mississippi Studios. It seems appropriate, Sunday morning, we're at a former, what was a, a church along Mississippi Avenue. Uh, it's a fantastic acoustics here. We have a really wonderful live audience. And a great lineup of guests today, uh, Columbia River Keepers. Human Access Project, which is responsible for the recent big float. And one of our summer students, uh, his audio documentary about the Native American Youth Alliance and their performance recently at the Mississippi Street Fair. Uh, and of course, we're, always, we're, we're with our house band, Irving. <laughs> and, and I mean, obviously, we have uh, Columbia River Keepers and we have uh, Human Access Project. There's sort of a river theme here. Uh, Josh, you've, I, I, actually, I know the answer to this question. You have spent a good amount of time uh, in and on the Willamette River. This is true, Phil Bussey. This is very true. Uh, I take Josh out every once in a while and, and have, I, I've taught him uh, how to wakeboard. That, that sounded terrible. That sounds like I, I taught you how to sit and roll over. You introduced me to the joys of water sports. <laughs> and on that note, let's start out with our house band, Irving. That was Irving, and this is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are so pleased to be joined this, uh, today by Jasmine Zimmer Stuckey from Columbia River Keepers. How are you? 
I'm doing very well today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming to the show. So it's it's um, Columbia Riverkeepers does a lot of uh, very important, very serious work. It has been uh, an exciting few past months for you. Unfortunately, excitement does not always mean um, good. Correct. Well, I'll start with the excitement that does mean good. Um, earlier this spring, we celebrated a huge victory. Um, after 12 years of fighting the liquefied natural gas industry and their attempt to turn the Pacific Northwest or the Columbia River into the largest export terminal uh, of natural gas in the country, uh, we won and the liquefied natural gas company pulled the plug and we can safely say that the Columbia Estuary is now free of all threats of LNG export. So that was huge. And that was a decade in the making. Um, and then shortly after, right, we had the oil train derailment and explosion in Mosier that uh, set the tone for the summer and really opened people's eyes to the real local threats of having these bomb trains come through our communities. And I, I want to talk about some of the specific um, uh, examples and fights and victories that Columbia Riverkeeper has had and, and is working on. Let's take a step back though and give sort of a context of, of what is the work that the Columbia Riverkeepers do. Um, I'm going to throw an idea out there and you correct me if it's wrong. So I, I see it as sort of you are helping put a chokehold on uh, coal and oil and the, the Columbia River and that, that area being used as, as transportation for those Plutons. Right. So I think, you know, we like to say we protect and restore the Columbia, you know, from the headwaters to the Pacific Ocean. Um, and right now, some of the biggest threats to our ability to protect the Columbia comes from the fossil fuel industry, um, who see the lower Columbia as, you know, the corridor for coal export, oil export, propane export, um, and oil refineries, uh, methanol export, you name it. Um, these companies, these corporations want to use the Columbia to ship um, you know, natural resources overseas and put all the risk on communities like Portland, Vancouver, Longview, Astoria, um, places that really depend on a clean, clean river. And, and looking at the background of the organization really helps me sort of get an idea of, of what you're doing now and then also some of the momentum is that it started out because of the Hanford nuclear site and, and that was a big part of the, at least the, the preceding organization that became Columbia River Keepers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we are still very active um, with the cleanup of Hanford. It's our you know, largest, uh, most contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. It's our sort of nuclear legacy in the atomic bomb um, during World War II, and it's still not cleaned up. We sit on the Hanford Advisory Board, and you know, nuclear waste from Hanford is still you know leaking into the river. It's getting closer and closer, um, and that's still something that we're incredibly concerned about and we still work on that issue. In addition to now all of these other threats that have come along. Um, and we also do fun stuff too, like cleanups and we send people, volunteers out testing the river for E. coli to make sure that um, it's safe to swim. So we do weekly updates on the E. coli levels. I, I just want to clarify that you're calling E. coli testing fun. Oh, it's really fun. Um, if y'all have never been E. coli testing, it's a great um, reason to go out in the river. You kind of wade out with your little sample bottle. You stick it in the water. You take it back to the lab. Um, we pour it in these cool test trays. It turns various colors to tell us how safe it is. Um, and then you get to tell people, by and large, we haven't had any E. coli outbreaks this summer, um, go out to the river, take your kids, take your family. Um, and it's also a great way to find out new places to swim. Great, go to the river, stop at Chipotle afterwards, pick up an Adwella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all okay. I just lost two sponsors. <laughs> 
And, and, and let's talk about some of the heroes and the villains in this, because I, you know, I've really been, it's been exciting to watch, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Senator Merkley and Senator Wyden have really come out after the, uh, the oil train derailment mm-hmm. uh, as, as strong proponents for what you're hoping to see. Is, is that fair? Yeah, it is fair that their eyes were uh, opened after something really terrible happened. Um, it had uh, something terrible had happened identical to that situation in Mosier about a dozen times uh, before in other places. So their eyes could have been opened sooner. Uh, it just took it happening in their you know congressional districts in order for them to really take action. Um, we would love to see a halt on. Uh, oil train transportation through the Columbia River Gorge. Um, and the easiest way, I think, for that to happen uh, in a meaningful way is for the Tesoro Savage Terminal, oil terminal proposed in, at the Port of Vancouver, to be stopped. Um, if it were built, it would bring five new oil trains through the Columbia River Gorge, possibly through Portland or on the Washington side. Um, the easiest way to sort of not have a problem is to not start a potential problem. And, and I just want to keep going Drilling in, sorry for the that imagery. Uh, drilling in on on this question, what's what is at stake? What is at stake? What are you? What is the vision for the Columbia River Keepers that would be the ideal situation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've got um, an amazing resource. The Columbia River, you know, not only does it provide sort of you know economic stability for the fishing industry, it's incredibly you know you cannot put a price on how important it is to the tribal nations. Um, and you can't put a price on clean water. And believe it or not, towns along the Columbia use the Columbia as their water source. Portland doesn't, but towns like Rainier, Oregon, they do. And so it's hard to um, you know, put a price on clean water when you know that it's someone's water supply. Yeah. And, and so the alternative then is, is solar, is wind. I mean, is, is that, and I know that's not part of the equation that you're working on, but, but you're trying to stop one thing and, and hoping to see something else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the cool things um, about these campaigns we've been working on to stop you know, the largest coal export terminal in North America in Longview and then the largest oil export terminal in Vancouver um, is we've formed these coalitions, um, the Power Pass Coal Coalition and the Stand Up to Oil Coalition. And part of those groups um, you know, are groups like Columbia Riverkeeper who work on the ground in the communities that are fighting the projects, you know, providing them you know, local organizing and you know, legal support. And then part of the um, other organizations in the coalition uh, you know, fo- have a far more you know, focus on clean energy, you know, renewable energy. And so we can, you know, through these coalitions, bring everything to the table. We can bring you know, the stopping, the no, we, have to, we cannot let this project go through. And we can also start the conversation about the what we want instead. Yeah, it, it just seems like you guys have a lot of plates you're trying to keep spinning. We've got a lot of plates. We've got an amazing, amazing staff um, of 11 people. We've got three attorneys, a couple of organizers, a couple scientists, and we all sit down at the table and say, what's the best thing to do in this situation? And when you get people who um, come from those different backgrounds, who are experts in those different fields, you generally get a pretty cool campaign. And it, but but it also seems like um, you guys you guys are really you're you're winning most of your fights um, you know whether it's at the the local or the national level or or with uh, some of the tribes I mean but Vancouver City Council recently just had a seven to nothing vote yeah they voted to ban oil terminals in their city um, which is outstanding um, yeah that deserves a round of applause. Uh, it can't apply retroactively to the Tesoro Savage oil terminal, unfortunately, but it does send a very clear message 
to Governor Inslee, um, who will make the ultimate decision uh, about what Vancouver city leaders want. And it's been interesting to see Vancouver city leaders, um, I guess, how do you say, evolve in their position uh, on the oil terminal based on um, community support. It's, it's, it's nice when you see democracy working and you see elected officials say, you know, I used to be in favor of this, but man, all my constituents have been calling me, have been emailing me, have been voting out my uh, colleagues who are in favor of the oil terminal. I should probably evolve. <laughs> And how much of that are you guys responsible for? I mean, city council in, in Vancouver was packed, mm -hmm. you know, standing room only, um, seven to nothing vote, unanimous vote, uh, you know, having city council members, uh, uh, how much were you responsible for getting people there to lobbying city council members? I mean, or did that happen? Did you guys light the fuse and that, that sort of took care of itself? Well, we definitely have to give credit to the citizens of Vancouver who've been taking this on. Um, I, I would you know, almost argue that the citizens of Vancouver are pr probably maybe more engaged environmentally than Portland you know, on these issues, no offense. Um, but they, they have incredible amount, amount of drive. You know, we help you know, with the phone banks, with the email alerts, uh, with the talking points, um, bringing the sound system for the rally, but really you know, the heart and soul of every campaign people. I mean, we can't run a campaign unless we have um, community support. When we started, when I started working in Kalama, Washington, uh, with this large uh, methanol refinery term uh, project, you know, I spent weeks just going around meeting everyone I could and essentially saying, hi, I'm Jasmine. This is the issue that I have. Do you want to work with me? Uh, and through that, we've built a strong, solid network. It's interesting how dynamic the Columbia River Keeper is. I mean, so you are doing grassroots or organizing, you're rallying people, you're helping them get these these movements going at the city level. But then at the same time, you guys are in the courtroom, you're, you're filing a lawsuit, you have a current lawsuit against the Bureau of Land Reclamation. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about that a little bit more? And, and, and that seems like such a different skill set or such a different focus. It, it mm -hmm. it's, would definitely seem that um, is, First off, just talk about the lawsuit and then also talk about how complicated that is to have to switch between being a grassroots organizer to being then uh, filing briefs against sure. a federal agency. Well, fortunately, I don't have to wear all those hats. Um, I'm not the one of the attorneys in the office, but um, it, it's, it's part of the holistic approach to protecting the Columbia River. We have to stop you know, future pollution and then we have to address the pollution that we have right now. And with our recent lawsuit that we filed against the Bureau of um, land reclamation against you know, their oil pollution from the Grand Coulee Dam. Um, that's stopping the existing pollution um, falls into that category. And it's essentially, for folks who don't know, you know, dams operate on these like massive turbines and, and water flows through them and they create electricity. You probably all know that. Um, but in order to keep sort of those, those turbines and those cogs going, they have to use oil, massive amounts of oil. And the dams on the Columbia River system uh, have never had um, an oil discharge permit or a Clean Water Act uh, permit, and so when we take when we filed a lawsuit against the Bureau, of, when we filed our lawsuit against the Bureau of Land Reclamation, we are asking them to, you know, turn down the amount of pollution that they have, track the amount of oil that they release, and you know potentially use other sources that is that aren't so polluting. We had a similar lawsuit against um, the Army Corps of Engineers for the Bonneville Dam and the other dams that they control on the Columbia and Snake River system, and we won that. Um, they're actually in trials right now using non, 
petroleum-based oils in their dams, which is amazing. So that's a way to get to a solution without, while you know, saying no to something, which is outstanding. So hopefully the trials will come back soon, and you know, the non-petroleum-based oils that they use will be adopted at the other, at all other dams, not only in the Columbia but also you know across the country. So I, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about you a bit and and how you got involved in this. So you grew up in Salem. Yes. You went to the University of Oregon. Um, how much did the Willamette River, not the Columbia, but the Willamette River, um, mm -hmm. which was going through Salem and, and obviously Eugene, how much did that play a role in your growing up? Yeah. It was huge in my desire to protect clean water. And I know you're going to hear some great things from Willie and Human Access Project, and he's probably going to cringe at what I'm going to say. But you know, I grew up in Salem near the Willamette River, and my parents and all of my family you know, always said, don't go in the river. You know, there's three-headed fish, you know, there's an old paper mill. Um, we're not going to take you to play in the Willamette. We're going to take you to play in you know, rivers that are closer to the source. Uh, and, and that always stuck with me. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized they were wrong. Uh, not only is the Willamette you know, safe to swim in, but there are better things you can do uh, besides just simply uh, you know, take your kids somewhere else. They should have instilled some kind of advocacy in me to fix you know, what they thought was a problem instead of just taking me somewhere else. So that's, that's what I grew up thinking. And, um, and I know people still believe that about the Willamette and the Columbia. And uh, I mean, we're out there to, to say that one, it's, it's great to swim, it's safe to swim, and, um, and you can do more to protect it. And, and you're a rafter and a surfer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, what advice do you give to people in terms of how to interact with, with, with rivers or with the ocean or with waterways in terms of um, both physically and cerebrally? I mean, it, it, it seems like it takes that to, uh, as a first step to want to be a steward of it. Yeah, I mean, raft, being in the water, any kind of water where I can't see the bottom, uh, is kind of my happy place. And so that, you know, people can find their inspiration anywhere to protect what they love. Um, but for me, just having access to amazing rivers, an amazing ocean, and to know that it's that it's safe, that there are people working to make it clean, to make it healthy, it, it's outstanding. You know, you really uh, have a hard time thinking about protecting something without actually being able to go there every once in a while and, and jump in. <laughs> Jasmine Zimmer Stuckey is with the Columbia River Keepers, and uh, tell us about a current campaign you guys have and how people can get involved with the organization and then give us a song to take us out. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about my new favorite campaign, which is the campaign against the methanol refinery in Kalama, Washington. Um, it would increase Washington's natural gas consumption by one third. So take it up from you know 900,000 to you know, 300,000 more than that. Um, and folks can get involved. You know, Portland and the Pacific Northwest plays a huge role in all of these um, fossil fuel debates. So the best way to do it is to just join our email list when there's a public hearing or a comment period. Um, click the link, fill out a comment card, come to a public hearing. Um, when we had a recent comment period, we collected almost 300,000 comments, and it makes a difference. So your one thing adds up to thousands of things. So please, please be involved in that way. And I chose the Woody Guthrie song, uh, the Woody Guthrie uh, Columbia River series. Uh, is in its 75th anniversary, and we um, 
just thought it would be appropriate. I mean, we know that this is all in favor of, you know, this was meant to support the hydropower system. And since we just filed a lawsuit against the Grand Coulee Dam, we thought we would sort of bring it in. <laughs> great, great choice. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for being on the show. Thank you. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. This is a show that's sponsored by the Media Institute for Social Change. We are a nonprofit that is in its 10th year, and our flagship program has been a summer program where we bring a dozen college students, bright, engaged, optimistic uh, students from select colleges around the country, and teach them the journalism skills to make uh, positive, impactful full media. And... Uh, we have one of our students with us today, Rashad Sala. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, one of, one of the things that we do with the program is that uh, the students make two primary documentaries. They make a radio documentary uh, and they, they, they make a, a film documentary. And uh, Rashad, you've, you have finished your radio documentary, which we're going to yes. talk about and listen to in a second. Let's talk about you. Okay, sounds great. Uh, it's, 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 I was actually, your, your dad happens to be here in the audience and, and here today, and we were talking before the show, and you were actually born not too far from here. Yeah, I was born um, in Portland in 1996, and it was like a f f Kaiser Hospital or something. It's, I think it's in, on it, the coast in, in North Portland, yeah. And then I was lived here for about a year, and then moved back to Connecticut, spent some summers in uh, the Woodburn-Hubbard area, and uh, yeah back here for the summer. Yeah, it's actually, it's at what the, the Kaiser Hospital that is now the Adidas uh, North American headquarters. I guess so, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> not far from here, and, and I think it's interesting because part of the documentary that, or the documentary that you play, part of the uh, tension in it is about, it's about uh, Native American Youth Alliance, and they used to be headquartered really just across the street here from Mississippi Studios, and, and um, because of rent and gentrification have been pushed out, and it's interesting to see some of the changes that have happened. Absolutely. Um, you want to keep going? Yeah, um, no, I really, definitely, I have not seen, like, the actual rent hikes and, like, gentrification and people getting pushed out personally, but, um, I mean, I can see it all around me, and I can assume, like, how devastating it's been for people. Um, and, yeah, NEA is actually the um, Native American Youth and Family Center. Um, but, yeah, um, and they, I think we're on 4,000, Mississippi, so it's right around here, and now they are on um, Columbia Boulevard, and it sort of is just like a reflection of, you know, continued Native peoples being um, really just pushed out of the main, uh, the mainstream of not just Portland, but American society, and so, you know, my, 
opportunity to make an audio documentary about any aspect of NEA was really a, um, a pleasure and an honor for myself just to be able to do something to put um, the Native American voice back into mainstream society. I want to talk a little bit more about the documentary in a second, but let's talk again about where are you from, where are you in school? Yeah, um, I am from Woodbridge, Connecticut, um, and I am a student. I'm going to start my first year at Brown University. I did a year at Oberlin College, um, so I'm going to be a sophomore. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the new uh, new challenges, new adventures. Yeah, yeah and I, you know, I think it's interesting. Like when, when people talk about the next generation and the hope, I mean, they're talking about you. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a, you're doing really fantastic work and 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 learning stuff. I mean, are are you? Do you share that optimism? Do I share optimism about the future, like the, media. So, the future of social issues, or the future of media, or the future of the the media's opportunity to to provide social impact in a positive way? Oh, I think so, but I guess I also consider myself a cynic at the same time. Um, no, I really do. I think less so. Just I think media has a twofold purpose. It can either bring up a whole perspective and help someone celebrate that perspective, but then it can also um, you know, educate people who don't have the insight into that perspective. And I think, you know, people should do a better job of either separating one from the other or merging them together. Because I think really that can potentially happen a lot more is that people can celebrate their own culture or celebrate what they are passionate about and not alienate other people. And at the same time, really can, can do good and educate others. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Let's... um. Just set up your, your documentary for us. Uh, you've already talked about it a little bit. Um, why did you choose this topic, and, and um, what, what, what is it that you'd have people listen for when they're listening to the documentary? Um, yeah, sure. I did an audio piece on the Sacred Poets, which is a um, spoken word poetry group from NEA, the Native American Youth and Family Center. And they're a four-person group, um, high school students in the Portland area. And for me, I really wanted, I was passionate about doing something on Nea just to, because, um, you know, as a Palestinian person, I feel like the Native American experience and the Palestinian experience, there are, I mean, obviously they're very different, but there are some overlaps just in terms of, you know, facing erasure. And so any, anything that I could do to help negate the erasure of indigenous people, um, I would, I would have loved to do it, yeah. Um, and so things to listen for is just the the collaborative nature of the group. They refuse to perform individually. Um, they insist on performing together all the time, and they also write together. So just listen for the um, how much they communicate with each other and how strong their voices are together, yeah. Rashad Sala is a student with R, the Media Institute summer program, and this is his radio piece that he produced. A sea of largely white Portlanders, having a carefree time, drinking big cups of beer, eating, and dancing. This is the Mississippi Street Fair, and while it's a great place to let loose and enjoy the neighborhood, it's not the ideal place to talk about oppression and lost identity. Out of nowhere, a drum interrupts a squad of 65-year-olds drunkenly dancing to Cuban music, and four teenagers take the stage. I was robbed once, and they took everything. I was robbed of my identity. Here are the Sacred Poets, a spoken word group from the Native American Youth and Family Center, the largest Native American support group in Portland, with departments of healthcare, drug rehab, housing, education, 
you name it. Naya used to be based just feet from the sacred poet's stage, but rent hikes and gentrification forced them out. And to get a closer look at the sacred poets today, we have to take a bus 45 minutes east to the other side of the Northeast Portland Highway. The Native American Youth and Family Center, known as NEA, operates in a former elementary school building on Columbia Boulevard. The hallway doors slam and sneakers squeak, but despite the echoes, NEA is a welcoming place. Clay River, a NEA educator and founder of the Sacred Poets, has given the Native perspective a public voice. Poetry is in our, our bloodline. It's part of our oral traditions. They're inherently going to be poets. Poetry is medicine. That's from one of our poems. And I continue to like replay that in my head and stuff because it is, it's medicine and it makes us feel better. So I just- This is Talise Green, like I say that to myself, like, one of the sacred poets. And while poetry helps her heal personally, River hopes bigger for the group, that it can strengthen the entire native community. My hope would be that they're forming into little activists and will go out and create that change. If they can take that back to their homes, to their res, to uh, whatever urban uh, native community they live in, and teach that to the younger generations, it's just creating more ways for us to heal as communities. Even though the younger generations haven't been born, intergenerational relations have strengthened. The elders are the first to hear every new sacred poet's piece, and they support the program 100%. But there's still a lot to do outside the Native community. We are living ghosts. We stand in front of Native museums holding signs. I'm still here. We are still here. As the sacred poets throw their story out to the audience, only a few hooks catch. Much of the audience faces away from the stage, beer in hand, talking about Craigslist cars and babysitters. Many people wouldn't talk about the performance because they hadn't paid enough attention to it. But some were taken by it. People like Jesse Matinki. I think it was like powerful and kind of saddening to me. Jesse cares deeply about the Native community, but Native history was not a big part of her school's curriculum. Indigenous people only came up briefly in an immigration class. Spoken word poetry if you're has just served tuning as a great in, you're listening to the nonprofit hour from the Media Institute for Social but without Change other means on of political FM. pressure and advocacy to become a supporting member of the media centuries of exclusion and find out more about their drug work. abuse you can visit the sacred poets have done change has raised awareness among the people who members hold receive cards. annual benefits and support the programs the such as the nonprofit hour and their summer documentary program for social change the nonprofit hour is also brought to you in part by generous support from Pacific Financial Bank and Business World. Find out more at therightbank.com or businessworkspdx.com. So that's a, that's a really great piece. I mean, good message, uh, great recording. Had you done much radio production before that? Um, in terms of like radio journalism, no, not at all. Uh, this past year in college, I had two radio shows, first and second semester. My first one was an international trap rap uh, show that aired at 3 a.m. Uh, Tuesday nights. And then the second one was a Middle Eastern uh, and film score fusion uh, show. But journalism, no. Uh, any, anything in the future you think you do for radio journalism? Um, I don't know about radio. I mean, I, I really liked it. And I think especially talking to journalists in um, 
you know, people actually working in the field and hearing their different perspectives. I think it, radio is a little bit wider of a, it's a wider field than what I was thinking. And, um, especially talking to like John Sepulveda and stuff, having, you know, his perspective, having him talk was really eye opening for me because it had broken sort of a, a construct of what I thought radio journalism was. Um, but yeah, so I would definitely, I don't know, have, I don't have any specific goals right now, but I would definitely be open to, to radio journalism in the future and, you know, trying to find a break into the audio tape circuit, hopefully, maybe. That's a long-term dream. Rashad Sala, thank you so much, and we look forward to your future work. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoy, everyone. Let's bring back up the band Irving.
big float is a movement disguised as a party. Ultimately, when people are able to get in it for the first time, their relationship is immediately reconciled and people realize what an amazing resource and amenity the Willamette is to the city and why we should protect it and take care of it. Individually, it does feel very powerless to try to affect any kind of substantive change in our world. But collectively, we can make a difference. And as more and more people get on board, as more and more people simply get in the water to demonstrate the fact that they love our river and want to recreate in it, change will occur. It's the world's laziest revolution. This is Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. Uh, we are, I'm so happy to be joined by Willie Levinson with the founder of the Human Access Project. Thanks Phil, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. So just, just by way of introduction, I, I like this. This, this is one of, in, in one of your recent position papers. And I, I like that you guys have position papers too. Um, it, you guys say something towards the effect of the Willamette River is like having a huge swimming pool right in the middle of the city. The problem is there is virtually no way to get to it. By Portland Parks and Rec Recreation's account, only 5% of downtown Portland has river edge access. Correct. So, you know, I'd, I'd say kind of a good primer for our position is that the Willamette River is owned by the citizens of Oregon. It's Portland's largest public open space. Collectively, we paid $1.44 billion to complete the big pipe project, which took 20 years to complete. Uh, because of that, we have among the highest sewer bills in the country. And uh, now that we've largely eliminated our sewage overflow issue, there's really no way to get to this river that's owned by the citizens of Oregon. And for us, uh, we'll never apologize for the therapeutic benefit that rivers bring to people. And we're, we're gonna get to all the problems, what has been and, and what the big pipe is, but I, I wanna start with, with um, I don't understand the name of your organization. Human Access Project, right. Okay, <laughs> that's good. It's funny because uh, Early on, I did get a little pushback on the name of the organization. It should have Willamette in it, should have something about rivers. Ultimately, the funny thing about a name is that, um, you know, like Irving picking a rock man, Nike, some people know that Nike means a goddess or something, but what does Nike mean now? It means they're this company that produces. So for me, a name is really personal, and it's just pick a name and make it mean something. So on a certain level, it put a little more uh, uh, pressure on us to deliver and do something. But the thing that's been cool is that ultimately, for me, what human access means is it's sort of tongue-in-cheek because having habitat for wildlife and having birds and fish be a part of a river is basically the biggest difference, say, between a pool and a river. 
for me, I prefer swimming in rivers because you uh, have this awesome connection with nature. But in Portland, I think there's a lot of conversation about wildlife protection, which is extremely important. But it is kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, hey, how about the humans too? We want to get in the water. So what's happened, um, hopefully, you know, our advocacy has had some touch on it. But creating human access to the Willamette is becoming a part of the planning vernacular now. And people will talk about we need to create better access to the river. So. And, and let's, let's then roll back to, you know, 20, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, it, the river has a rep, bad reputation. Right. And, and part of that is because the poop went right to the river. There's lots of reasons. And as Jasmine said that I uh, really agree with is when I first moved to Portland, I had, I grew up swimming. I was a river rat in the pool. I went to Radford University in Southwest Virginia. The new river flows behind the campus. That community loves the river. It's a pride of the community, you know, in, in the summertime in particular. Then I moved to Boise, Idaho, which probably has the Paris of river park systems in the world. It's hard to believe, but they really do. It's, they have an amazing green, uh, green trail on either side of the river. They just put in a kayak park. People fish in it, swim in it, tube in it. It is the pride of their community. And Jacques Cousteau says it very well, which Jasmine alluded to too, is people protect what they love. So when I moved to Portland and I was indoctrinated with our oral history the way many people are and the way Jasmine was indoctrinated by her parents at the time is that the Willamette, it, it rains a lot in Portland and don't put your toe in the Willamette because it'll kill you. And when I first heard that, I was really disappointed. And then I just got really pissed off because again, people would just make jokes about the Willamette rather than taking that energy to dig in and try to do something about it. And particularly in our community that we really pride ourselves on being green that it just surprised me that people would make jokes about a river. And I think to me, the reason why people make jokes about a river is because it's a way to subordinate it, take some power away from it. Because I think any human being that turns their back on a river and says, this river is hopeless, has forfeited a little part of their soul, as dramatic as that sounds. No, there, 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 are, there are a number of ironies about the Willamette River. One, I mean, it's really the most defining feature of, of Portland in terms of both geographically, uh, its history, why we even exist here as, as a city. Uh, and, and like you just said, I mean, this is a community that very much believes in an environmental protection, yet are, we're, we haven't done much to protect that river. So yeah, so let me say, so I mean, there's very good reasons why people in Portland, particularly people who have lived here, you know, maybe they're in their 60s or 70s, why they have this uh, fear and shame about the Willamette. Um, and, you know, it's hard to believe that there was a time in Oregon there was a, not a, a Department of Environmental Quality. You know, so Tom McCall came around, our famous governor, and I have to imagine that when he kind of dug in uh, to start doing work to establish a DEQ, to start addressing point source pollution, he had to say to himself, I am not giving up on this river. At the time he started his work, fish would literally suffocate and die because the oxygen levels were so low in certain stretches of the Willamette. But ultimately today, the river is safe for swimming. Nobody says otherwise. Scientifically, it's safe for swimming. If we were all robots, hilariously, when the big pipe was completed, I seriously was expecting the entire city to start swimming in the river. I, I really did. But we're not robots. It's a very emotional issue. And that's kind of my favorite spot of advocacy is having faith in the river that, you know, the power of river and water is powerful to people. And if we can create the right platforms for people to experience it in their own way, in their own time, that it will be very meaningful and powerful as they discover it. And really uh, creating better access to the river's edge. It is a quality of life issue. Um, 
But what I really think is more powerful potentially is that as we create a base of interest and ownership of the Willamette in Portland, the, a lot of the work that needs to happen is upstream in terms of what's coming our way. So we have the largest concentration of population in Portland. If we can get people engaged and the advocacy, if you're not connected to a cause, advocacy is white noise. If you're connected to a cause, it's sexy. That's what we want. We want Willamette River advocacy to be sexy and we want to take this um, base of people that we're working on developing and bringing it to Salem. Yeah, and I, and I think that that brings us, you know, right right to the big float. Um, I mean, I, I for one really appreciate all the work that you've been doing. I, I've I've I, my sport is rowing. I've, I, I'm out on that river quite a bit. Um, like I said with uh, Josh, who's in the band Irving, uh, we go out and and we're on the river wakeboarding and swimming in it uh, a number of times. Like I love being in that river, and and it, it was so nice. Uh, when your organization came around just a few years ago yep. and started to, to bring people in in a fun way with bands marching and leading people down to the riverfront to what used to be a swim across and now is the big, the big float. Right. Um, that happened a few weekends ago. Yes. Uh, that's the third year you've had the big float. Sixth year. Of the Sixth big year. Float. Yes. Numbers okay. are down a little bit this year because of the weather. A couple of years back, we had 2,300 people. We got deuced two years in a row with the weather. But, uh, you know, I, uh, you can't control Mother Nature, and I know we're going to have our breakout year next year, the year after. It doesn't matter. But the thing that's become um, interesting is that when you started the big float, you know, people just knew the big float. Now what's nice is Human Access Project is kind of leapfrogging over the big float, and it's just one of the things that we're doing. In addition to the big float, something that's turning into just as much of a monster as the big float is our River Hugger swim team. So four days a week, three days a week in the morning, we swim across the Willamette and back. It's an advocacy swim to bring attention to the fact that the Willamette is swimmable, it won't kill you, and it feels great. Because um, ultimately, if people, it's a conversation starter. We do it while people are going to work. So if people look maybe early in the summer and say, my God, there's people swimming in the Willamette. Are they crazy? They're whatever. At the end of the summer, there's still people swimming. And intellectually, it challenges you to say, okay, maybe the Willamette will not kill you. And if you can get somebody from saying the Willamette I've never touched the Willamette will kill you to, okay, maybe the Willamette won't kill you. You've opened up their ears this much. That is the beginning of a conversation. So in terms of the spectrum of acceptance of what we're working on, big floaters, there are pioneers. The people who really get the value of activating the Willamette River for recreational use, the river huggers, they're unbelievable. They're the foot soldiers. We have like 30 people come out every morning generally to swim across the Willamette and back. And, you know, slowly but surely, it's interesting. Advocacy is a very intangible thing often, but I, I feel like I can just start gripping it a little bit. Something interesting is happening. And I want to talk more about both the, well, uh, the Big Float event and, and the, uh, the River Hugger swim team. The Big Float, just to explain what it is for those of, that haven't been indoctrinated yet or that haven't seen it or participated in it. Okay, so, you know, the Big Float, it, it really, for me, is a movement disguised as a party. It's a way to trick kids to eat their vegetables. So, I mean, what's hilarious is the first year we did the big float, I came out with a friend in a canoe. And, you, you know, you hear all this stuff about the Willamette, and you read the science, and you're like, okay, I believe the science, whatever. But when I still went in the first time, I was feeling a little apprehensive myself. And then as soon as I got in, in the inner tube, I knew this was going to work awesome because it was a great experience. So individually people might not feel comfortable going into the Willamette because there's a lot of inertia in our community that tells you to do otherwise. But we set up this really fun campy event. You don't even realize you're going in the Willamette River. And then by the time you're in, your, your relationship is 
completely reconciled with the Willamette River. All of a sudden, the shame is lifted. You say, wow, you know, this river not only didn't kill me, it feels awesome to be in this river. And then, you know, that is kind of the beginning again of establishing a baseline relationship with this river where I think a lot of people in this community would say they love the Willamette, but would also say they wouldn't touch it because they're afraid it would kill them. So it's, you know, a, lo a lot of what I feel like our work is doing is undoing the oral history that's been established around the Willamette. Yeah, and just to paint the scene a little bit, I, I, I did go down to the big float this year, and, and you show up, and you have a band that's out on a barge. Yep. Two bands, two yep. bands, two barges. Yep. And, you know, there's food carts there. It's a very Portland event. And then, of course, a marching band is there. Right. And they strike it up, and you have a parade that walks down from the uh, Hawthorne Bridge right. to south of the Hawthorne Bridge to Poetry Beach, which I also want to talk about because that is partly your responsibility. Yep. Walk down to, to Poetry Beach, and you walk past all these people eating bagels and drinking coffee at Starbucks yeah. and sort of looking surprised. That well, wait till, wait till next year. I mean, it's really fun when the weather's actually good. The point of the band is just kind of like, Loud and proud. That's right, bitches. We're getting in the water. That's kind of what this is about. And it's like, you can just kind of say what you want. I mean, a hilarious thing happened last year. I went to the Blues Festival, brought down some inner tubes, uh, hung out in the water, which is an incredible vantage point to see the Blues Festival. And I looked around, I was thinking, There's, why aren't there not more people in inner tubes here? And I was thinking, well, I'm probably getting the Willamette more than most people. And it just occurred to me to do this. So... On the way back, I was walking back with my inner tube. It was no big deal. It wasn't big float day. And people were looking at me like I was a freak. And I was thinking, this is so wrong. I cannot wait until the culture gets transformed so that when you're walking around with an inner tube and a bathing suit on, people are envious because they have to go back to work. It's going to feel more like Hood River in Portland. That's what Portland has in store. I mean, it's super exciting to be a part of this DNA-changing thing in Portland for so many ways. I mean, not only as a river evangelist to just kind of help people reconnect with rivers. But I think too, uh, just the inspiration of collectively how people do feel, I think, powerless to affect big change in the world, but collectively we can make a difference. And I think if people at some point take a look back and say, you know, it's crazy. At one point, this community really had a bad relationship with this river. People somehow didn't swim in this because they will have loved it so much at that point. Hopefully it'll inspire other people to take on causes that are important to them, and hopefully it'll inspire other movements around urban rivers, which is happening. There's a lot of urban river stuff happening right now. And be, beyond the mentality and, and needing to get over that, that hurdle, there is also the problem that, that uh, you guys have pointed out before, that there isn't much access there. Correct. Well, there's an extreme deficit of water edge access in downtown Portland. Um, you know, one of the active things we're working on is uh, Daimler, has put in a proposal to the city to move the Kevin Duckworth Dock, Memorial Dock, which is by the Steel Bridge to Swan Island. Um, it's where they have headquarters. Where they have a headquarters. And, you know, we're totally in favor with Daimler getting a dock. It would actually be great for their employees, but we feel like they should purchase their own. The replacement cost of that dock is $1.5 million. It's based in the highest density of uh, population in the state of Oregon. And when you're looking at a situation where only 5% of downtown Portland has access to the river's edge, it just seems like a really strange time to even contemplate moving it. But, you know, a lot of, I mean, everything that we're, we're talking about in terms of creating better access to the rudder's edge, there's nothing creative about it at all. But our work is pioneering because swimming has not actively happened in the Willamette for over 100 years. Parks and Recreation kind of freaked out about it. Nobody really wants to do it. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. I've made the rounds at City Hall, and I've gotten to the point where, you know, people get what we're doing, and I, th I think kind of the next phase for us over the next year or two is going to be 
me finding uh, my uh, fun place again, which is just kind of pure activism, of just sort of finding fun, uh, high impact, high visibility ways to get people engaged and let um, people in City Hall know that there's voters on the water, you know. But part part of part of the success that you've had is Poetry Beach, which is it's just it's a great spot. Uh, it's it's um, south of the Hawthorne Bridge, north of Tillicum. It's right under the Markham Bridge on the west side. So the story behind that is um, that's where we put in for the big float. And prior human access project, human access to us in Portland means three things: one, a sign that says you can get to the water's edge; two, a safe, inviting trail that hopefully coaxes you to get to the water's edge where you don't feel scared about somebody mugging you or jumping you. And three is uh, human habitat. So, um, you know, a lot of people have told me they would never swim in downtown, but they like swimming at Savi's Island, which is great, but I just remind them that it's the exact same river, only it's downstream from a Superfund site. So if water quality was your issue, you would actually probably prefer to be in downtown Portland. So then you take a step back and say, why would somebody be willing to drive 20 minutes out of town, go over a bridge, purchase a permit, walk half a mile away to get to a beach, and then always be in a traffic jam on the way home because it's a one-lane bridge. And it's because that area is a human habitat. It has beaches, trees. That is a place that human feels comfortable. So it's not just enough to create a path. It's not enough to create a sign. And that's a lot of the work that we've been doing in these low-hanging beaches in downtown. So Poets Beach, we um, put in for the big float there, but there's this big field of riprap rock in between a concrete path and the beach. So we got permission from Army Corps of Engineers, Department of State Lands, and City of Portland simply to cut in two five-foot chunks of basalt and to clear away rocks from the beach to make it beachier, make a safe trail. And as we were doing it, the rock cutter said, hey, do you uh, need any signage? And we came up with the idea of putting children's poetry on, tops, uh, on top of the rocks leading to the trail about the Willamette. Um, and we also got 11 Chinook jargon words from the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde because we feel like in the same way that Portland is thirsty for a relationship with the Willamette River and doesn't realize it, we are thirsty for the culture of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde who had villages on either side of the Willamette. Every other Northwest city has a, Northwest, has a Native American footprint. Seattle, Spokane, Victoria, Vancouver. Are, there's, it's completely absent from Portland and having it on the river is a perfect spot. So. I had an opportunity, uh, Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde have been a sponsor of the big float since the very first year. I had a chance to meet the Tribal Council this past year, and it's one of the highlights of my year that they just were thrilled at the work that we've accomplished. Having their blessing means, means so much. And it, it's really fun to walk down uh, sort of a it's, a, it's a very gradual ramp, and you get down to a, a nice sandy beach and, and reading the poetry as you go. Do you have a favorite uh, line of poetry that one of the fourth graders uh, wrote or, or that's something that came from one of the tribes? Well, I mean, it ranges from really innocent to deeper, but one that just comes to mind is a river is wonderful. It keeps the fish from drying out. That's really cute. I mean, because the thing is, like, <laughs> I, and I think, too, like, from an advocacy perspective, I really love using art with advocacy is that if we were all robots and we could just read the science, we would all be in the water right now. We'd all just figure out, even though there's not a lot of access points, how to get in the water. But when you're able to use children's poetry, it just slows you down and it just kind of prepares you to give the Willamette another chance. That's what I really love about Poets Beach. And and how what, what was the budget for creating it? It's, there was work. I mean, there's obviously advocacy work that it took to, to get that done. But the actual money to open up that beach, what was that? Well, let me just say the most, from, from 
my perspective with Human Access Project, permission is worth way more money than gold. You know, you can always fundraise to do these things, but yeah, that project costs like twelve to fifteen thousand dollars. Nothing. Yeah. And it's remarkable. I mean, it is it is a beautiful, miracle, envious beach. The miracle is that we got permission from the Parks Department to engrave on the rocks. That is that is the miracle in such a short period of time. But that's the thing. How can you say no to children's poetry? It's impossible. That's my favorite part of advocacy is just setting up situations that are very difficult to say no to. What is, uh, is there another beach that you have an, your eye on? I mean, there are quite a few uh, unspoiled, untouched areas that, that could look like they could be easily flipped. Uh, to, to use a word, um, uh, well, into beaches. Yeah, we're focused on three areas in the Kevin Duckworth dock for now. Um, you know, the 2035 plan is going to be voted on in February, so we're doing some policy work around that, just trying to strengthen. Right now, what's nice about the 2035 plan is that there's really nothing that's going to prevent greater access to the Willamette, but would like to have more teeth. But the uh, two other areas, an area we've nicknamed Audrey McCall Beach, is under the Hawthorne Bridge. I'm going to be heading there right after this interview with my wife. Can't wait. Um, we, on the east, on the east on side. On the east side, right underneath the Hawthorne Bridge. That's an area that, after the first big float, it occurred to me that if I'm going to be a more honest advocate, I need to start swimming in the water more. Um, so I started looking for places I could swim and uh, stumbled upon this place. I thought I discovered under the Hawthorne Bridge, but it was just cluttered with concrete chunks. So I had to get permission from eight different agencies simply to remove concrete chunks. With the one stipulation, we could not use heavy mechanized equipment. So again, when you do work that you love, there's this hidden gear available to you and just magic things happen. So I randomly heard a story on the radio about Inverness inmate work crews doing community service work. I didn't even have a not-for-profit yet. And I called up and made a few calls, talked to the guy, said, here's the situation. I got permission from eight different agencies to remove concrete chunks, but they said we cannot use heavy mechanized equipment. Can we bring your guys out? And uh, he said, yeah, sure, I'll help you. I told him, you know, when I see concrete chunks on the banks of the Willamette, it communicates to me the city doesn't care about the river. It really just viscerally pissed me off. So four years later, we moved 19 tons of concrete by hand and we re revealed a beach. And the thing that's really cool is that, I mean, we were doing it, I wouldn't say it under the cover of night. I mean, we'd do it in the daytime, but we did no publicity around it. There's no signage around it. Because when you have consensus from eight different agencies, one person could say no and you're done. So now that it's completed, people have discovered it on their own, even without any signage or trails or anything else. So that's my favorite spot to swim, actually. And we named it after um, uh, Tom McCall's wife, Audrey McCall. So you have Audrey McCall on one side, Tom McCall on the other side, and Tad McCall, his son, who's in his 70s now, is actually on our board of trustees, loves the idea, and again, is really supportive of our work, which is super cool. There's a certain poetry of having Tom and Audrey on, you know, hugging the river, as it were. Well, and here's, and the, the actual truth of the story is that when I was out with friends, because they would be helping me a lot removing the concrete chunks, says, hey, you're going to name this Will's Beach, right? Willie's Beach, right? And I was thinking, I would never call this Willie's Beach. If anything, I'd call it Pamela's Beach after my wife. But even that seemed too self-serving. But I thought, you know, Audrey McCall, in the same way that my wife is just such a co-collaborator and supporter of my work, I know Audrey was for Tom, too. So it's really kind of a tribute to everyone you know, I'm kind of in front all the time, but, you know, it's really a team thing between myself and Pamela with all the support and all the other volunteers, of course. But, but yeah, so it's just kind of a nod to everybody who's behind the scenes who supports the, the leader of something. So if people want to get involved, the big, the big float has passed for this year, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, though. Uh, people can come out for the River Hugger Swim Team. And then August 20th, you have a... 
the naked goddess swim. I, we have to talk about, so are men allowed to do this? Um, you know, if, if you wanted to be a, I think they have male chaperone kayakers, but, you know, I actually went last year, just it was the first year we partnered with uh, the Naked Goddess Swim Group, and they, they had it all under control. I'm not going to go this year. I, I it's It was fine. I actually took a dip myself because I felt jealous from all the naked gal swimming, and I highly recommend uh, skinny dipping in the Willamette at, at, at night or just swimming in general at night if, in, in a safe way. And, and so the, the, the naked, God, naked Goddess Swim is... Women, a group of women jumping in, just I mean, just like Portland has the a very popular naked bike ride. Uh, this is this is a naked swim, right? And I, you know, again, it's kind of our it's a sweet spot for human access project because it's kind of a high visibility, fun way to get people in the water who may have not before. And uh, yeah, we're we're not going to apologize for having fun. That's what this is all about. And there's a joke in there somewhere about full moons and bare bottoms, right? Yeah, it's it's a perfect alignment of moons. That night, the moons line up. How's that? Willie Levinson is the founder of the Human Access Project. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and transforming uh, the mentality about the Willamette River and bringing access there. And, and you had a song to take us out. Yeah, let's hit it. And thanks to everybody who uh, participates. As Jasmine said, it's a collective thing. And uh, everyone who came to the Big Float, we met for the first time face-to-face -face as you were getting into the water. So, uh, yeah, let's transform Portland. Absolutely. And uh, Willie, a song to take us out. Oh, should I introduce it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so this is actually a song that I wrote with a friend of mine. I was looking around for a song about the Willamette River. I feel like every movement needs a song. And I couldn't find one. And it kind of got to the point where actually I tried to pair children's poetry with musicians, hoping that would uh, inspire them to do something. So I, uh, Pete Seeger died. I was on a vacation in Hawaii, and when somebody dies, you hear a lot about them in a short period of time. And I realized I didn't know much about him. I grew up listening to him. My dad loved Pete Seeger's uh, music. And um, I was just really, really inspired by him. And I just thought, you know what? Oh, it. I'm going to write a song about the Willamette. So I did. And I just, it's funny putting something like that out because it's sort of like, uh, you know, you put something out in the public space, I guess. Everything I do in some way, I've kind of visual experience as my own side of art. And people, believe it or not, criticize uh, the work that I do sometimes. But that's what happens when you put stuff out in the public space. So I thought with this song, if people wanted to criticize it, I could just think, you know what? Good. Write your own song. Willamette needs more songs. So uh, again, a lot of what Human Access Project is trying to do is start a conversation. You got to start somewhere. And uh, that's what maybe this song represents. Hope you like it. Let's give a listen. To a dream one day, a town where I could swim and play. Loved its river just like the land, the Cascade Mountains, the coast, and micro beer. I'm a river hugger, well, I'm a river lover. Your sparkling pride makes me come alive. Roll on, my friend, roll on. Take me back to days gone 
by The Grand Ronde tribes and the salmon thrive No dams, barges, bridges or cars Just canoes and oars and swimming under stars I'm a river hugger Willamette River lover Your sparkling pride makes me come alive Roll on my friend Lamet Falls, a proud number two. Outside of Niagara, no one's larger than you. Would you ever guess our river has tides? Always lowest when the full moon shines so bright. I'm a river hugger, Lamet River lover. Your sparkling pride makes me come alive. That was a song in part by Willie Levinson, who was the founder of the Human Access Project. And we are joined again by Irving. This has been the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. Uh, so pleased to have our first recording here at Mississippi Studios. Uh, we will return on Sunday, August 21st. It is a great opportunity to come down, learn about some of the civic leaders in the city, and to grab a Bloody Mary. All right, Irving, why don't you uh, take us out with another song? This song is called Ice Caps.
has been the Nonprofit Hour. Thank you to our guests, Jasmine Zimmer-Suckley with Columbia River Keepers, Will Levinson from the Human Access Project, and to Rashad Sala, who is one of our summer students and who will be presenting this Wednesday, August 10th, at Shout House at 210 Southeast Madison, 7 p.m. Stop by, check out all of the students' videos and projects about nonprofits and civic leaders from around the city. And thank you, of course, to our band, Irving. We've now come to the end of this week's Nonprofit Hour show. The show has been produced and edited by myself, Jason Dennington, and was recorded this week at Mississippi Studios on Mississippi Avenue. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle at Nonprofit Hour and find archives of past shows on our SoundCloud page or free podcasts on the Apple iTunes Store. If you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about an organization we should profile on a future show, please send an email to nph at mediamakingchange.org. We'd like to thank our guests on the show this week, Jasmine Zimmer-Stuckey of Columbia Riverkeeper and Willie Levinson of Human Access Project, as well as Media Institute Summer Documentary Program student Rashad Salah for his audio documentary. We'd also like to thank our underwriters for their support, Pacific Continental Bank, Business Works, Pyramid Communications, Living Room Realty, Sarah Visa, and Ristretto Roasters. We'd like to thank the Media Institute for Social Change, our host Phil Bussey, and KXRY Radio X-Ray FM, and you, our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you have a great week, and join us again next week at noon on Monday for the Nonprofit Hour Show. <laughs>